Welcome to Women's Hoops and Talks, the What Podcast, where we are elevating the voice of women in basketball. We are part of the Almighty Baller Network, and you can find the What Podcast as part of the Blazers Edge podcast feed. I'm Tara, and I'm joined by Kendall. Kendall, last night, it was a, such a pleasure to actually meet you face-to-face, finally, after talking all these months. I know. I felt like we basically already had met, but not officially in person. So yeah, it was nice to finally have that happen. We met at the uh, Blazer game last night. We got to watch the Blazers take on Miami. That was really fun. I know you were busy, but we you, you yeah. carved out a few minutes to get a selfie. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I was just in town for a few days and then um, Brooke Olsendam, who we obviously had um, on the podcast a couple weeks ago, and then she's the sideline reporter for the Blazers. I was able to job shadow her for the night. So that was super fun. Got to kind of just follow her around and see everything she does during the day, which she does a lot. She's very busy throughout the entire game. So it made me even more impressed with everything she does. Yeah. Actually seeing her, actually seeing her do it and see how, like, how much she's really working throughout the game. Well, we have a terrific guest that we'll talk about in a little introduce in a little while. But first, let's get to a couple of NBA topics that uh, things that are on uh, our minds this week. We are. I can't believe the season is almost over. I can't believe the playoffs are basically what a month away. Yeah, Seems like it just started. It goes yeah, less so fast. a lot of a lot of teams have less than fifteen games. So we're getting, I feel like it just started. I know. It's really, really quite amazing. So over the summer, there were a lot of big moves, a lot of big names changed rosters, and everybody had a lot of hot takes about what all the either free agency moves or the trades, um, what, you know, what they were going to, whether or not they were good or bad or what was going to happen. So in hindsight, looking back now, let's talk about what were some of what you think were the best and the worst uh, off-season moves. So like starting with the what you think were the best, here I, I've got some choices for you. And you tell me which one, or if there's a different one, that you think was the best. So there's OKC picking up Paul George, Boston getting Kyrie Irving and Gordon Hayward, or Houston picking up Chris Paul. Which one of those do you think was the the best? And you can describe best however you want. Yeah. Um, I think it's hard to kind of judge the Boston moves because I think with uh, Gordon Hayward's injury, we don't really know how great that could have been. Uh, so obviously Kyrie's been doing great things for Boston, but I don't feel like they're necessarily, they're not doing anything really more than they were doing last season. I think it's just people are paying more attention to them all of this season compared to last year. So, I mean, they're still second in the East right now. Um, they were first at the, they ended first last year. So they're kind of around the same area. Um, so I don't feel like that necessarily affected them a whole lot. But then if you throw Gordon Hayward in there, that's kind of hard to judge, but I think it really comes uh, I think the best is probably Chris Paul going to Houston. I mean, seeing what that Houston team is doing right now, how they're just dominating the lead. And uh, I, I think that's really hard to argue that anything was really better than that. Um, OKC with Paul George, I don't think that that was really, like, it didn't really make a difference. They're still, if anything, they're worse this year. So they're, I mean, they're, as far as their record goes, it's hard to really compare the teams, um, especially when you're throwing in some of the other players in there with, especially with injuries right now with that team. So it's kind of hard to judge overall, but um, I don't think that that, that move didn't really, it didn't really make a difference for them. Uh, so I definitely would have to say the best would be Houston. I, I think I probably agree with you on that. And I think the thing, one that's really interesting about the Houston one was how puzzling the fit was, I mean, it wasn't really puzzling because just a few years ago, Harden wasn't playing point guard and then he got handed the ball and then he was playing point guard and then Chris Paul gets the ball back and who's the point guard. And, you know, so it was a little puzzling how it might line up. But I think one of the strengths of D'Antoni is that he doesn't overcoach anybody into doing any specific things. He's really great at figuring out what everybody's best at and figuring out how they can complement each other. 
not so much like the exact plays to run. And I think that he saw, you know, given the pieces of, you know, who were on his team, he saw how he could make them work together. And um, how about the worst? Um, that's hard. I feel like there's a lot of. Do you want me to give you some choices to narrow it down? Okay. So let's go back to OKC, (laughs) candidate for the best, (laughs) with picking up Paul George, or the worst, picking up Carmelo Anthony. And then, and this is up, like not, I'm not knocking all of these guys, but considering, you know, the impact players were moving and they moved to a team, what the result was. So not, you know, uh-huh. I'm not like saying bad things about Carmelo, but in, in, in terms of whether or not it was a great move, Carmelo Anthony to OKC, Isaiah Thomas to Cleveland, Dwayne Wade to Cleveland, or Derek Rose to Cleveland. I feel really bad because uh-huh. I couldn't think of any of those. Yeah. <laughs> any others that were not Cleveland. Yeah. I think that clearly just shows that just Cleveland in general made a lot of mistakes. Um, I think Carmelo going to OKC. Again, it's very similar to Paul George where I don't think it it didn't make as a big enough difference. I mean, they're obviously... People are saying, oh, they're worse with Carmelo on the floor, which I think obviously defensively they are um, not as strong when he's out there. But again, they're still right around the same kind of area in the Western Conference that they were last year. Obviously, right now they're a little or I guess right now they they went back up um, and they're fourth now. But as of a couple of days ago, they were seventh and eighth. And so. But I think that doesn't necessarily speak as much to them. I think that kind of speaks um, volumes about the other teams too, because all of uh, all of those teams are just kind of they're getting thrown around every time there's a, a game. Those stand like those that standing is just going all over the place. So when you really look at them as a team, though, I don't feel like either of those moves really made a big enough impact to be the best or the worst. I don't think it was necessarily a good move, but I wouldn't say it was the worst. As far as Cleveland, I think Derrick Rose, again, he didn't play a whole lot, and they didn't trade anyone away to get him. So I don't think, like, he didn't help them. He didn't make them better, but I don't think he necessarily hurt them because he didn't play enough to hurt them. Um, Dwayne Wade, I think, kind of similar, where I think he, I mean, obviously, he's a he, I don't think he really hurt the team a ton, but I think just kind of with the system, I just, it didn't really, it wasn't a good fit. Um, obviously him going back to Miami was the right thing uh, to do, but I think Isaiah Thomas of Cleveland is probably the worst because he just did not fit that system at all. He made that team worse. And just obviously with all the drama surrounding it too, he added to that. So I think just, there was really no positive to him going because also then that's what made them lose Tyree, which obviously, yeah, they wanted to trade or he wanted to trade all this, but they didn't have to trade him at the end of the day. They really didn't have to. They chose to. And what they got back just did not work. And now the tabs are where they're at, which is not great. So, um, yeah, I would definitely say that that would be the worst move. Yeah, I think history is not going to be kind to the uh, 2017 Cleveland Cavalier summer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that that uh, yeah, that was just um, or entire season, right? <laughs> <laughs> summer entire this entire season, just yeah. Right. I think to everyone, well, everyone you, involved wants to just forget about it. When you brought up Boston being in second place. They're not in second place to Cleveland. They're in second place to Toronto. And Cleveland is in fourth place right now. They're not even in third place anymore. Yeah, the Pacers. Uh, was it the Pacers who moved up? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So amazing. Well, let's move into the next topic that I was curious about where you're sitting on. And that is what are some of the playoff matches that you are looking forward to? Now, given. The West is completely unpredictable at this point. Um, Mm. But, uh, you know, if the things fell the way you wanted them to or whatever, what are some team matchups that you would really like to see? Um, Well, it's kind of interesting. For a while, um, it was looking like the 4-5 matchup was going to be Portland and Minnesota. And 
Um, if the playoffs were to happen right now, Portland and Minnesota would still be playing, but it would be the three sits matchup. So um, that's actually a matchup that I wanted. I was kind of looking forward to that because I think, I mean, I think when that was kind of happening where they were the four and five and um, it was pretty much looking like it was going to stay that way for most of the season. And I was excited for that matchup. Um, and now even with it being the three six, I mean, they're still the same teams. But um, I think that would be a really good series. Plus, obviously, I'm a big Jimmy Butler fan. So and it, it looks like he's probably going to be coming back for playoffs. So then he'd be in that. And then obviously being a Portland fan. Um, so kind of seeing that battle between like two, like the team I liked and a player I liked. And so that's always fun to watch. Plus, I just think that they're pretty, they're pretty evenly matched in a lot of ways. So I think that that would just be a really good series. Another one that uh, um, if the playoffs were to happen right now, which obviously all of these matchups, it's, you know, the way the Western Conference is looking right now, or and the Eastern Conference, um, both are switching around so much, the standings. So it's really hard to predict. Um, but if, again, if the playoffs were to happen right now, the four or five matchup would be OKC and New Orleans. And I think that would be a really interesting uh, matchup. I think it would be a lot better if Boogie was there. Uh, I think that would be a lot more interesting. But I think it's still obviously seeing um, Russell Westbrook against uh, Anthony Davis, kind of seeing that. Obviously, they're different positions. But just kind of seeing that um, dynamic there, I think, would be interesting as well. So I think the 4-5 or five matchup typically is the best series anyway just because they're the most evenly matched the one eight matchups are always boring the two sevens are usually not great either um and then the three sits is a little better but the four or five is like usually pretty good so i think kind of no matter what team what teams end up there that's usually always going to be a good matchup it's amazing to me that any of these teams could play each other i mean pretty much <laughs> The Houston and the team from the Bay Area are not going to meet, but pretty much any other combination <laughs> could, yeah. could happen. I think a fun one, because I always like the drama series, um, I think a fun one would be Houston versus the Clippers. I think that would be long, drawn out, and ugly. Well, it might, and that might not be long. The games might seem like an eternity each, <laughs> I think, because mm-hmm. I think there'd be a lot of fouling. There'd be a lot of gamesmanship from Doc, mm-hmm. and then there'd just be a lot of kind of aloofness and fouling from Houston. I think they would be four hours long each, um, yeah. and there would be all sorts of intrigue. But I think they, the NBA would get their money's worth um, yeah. from that I think series. with not having Blake Griffin, though, I feel like that could kind of take away from that because I think a lot of that kind of rivalry where at the beginning of the season seeing those two teams with obviously the the locker room stuffle and the all of that drama that was going on that was primarily Chris Paul and Blake Griffin that was kind of between them but so doesn't I think Austin having, and Trevor Ariza yeah yeah there still is that but I think kind of the main thing was Chris Paul and Blake Griffin that was kind of what was driving it so I think taking that out, I think there still would be drama, but I don't think it would be as much as it was earlier in the season, um, having having Blake there. But yeah, it would still be still a good series. I mean, it, playing wise, it would not be close at all. But the Clippers would get uh, probably they could probably get swept in that. They probably they probably would get swept. How about the East Coast? Are there any matchups that intrigue you out there? You know, I I try really hard to get into Eastern Conference, um, but it's it's just it's been so hard the past couple of years with the way um, the balance is. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of go based off of current matchups, um, like if the playoffs were to happen right now. I think uh, Cleveland and Washington would be the four and five, which you never thought that would you'd be saying that they'd be the four and five. Usually, people were thinking they were gonna be the one and two or two and three. And that's kind of what people were thinking for so long. And now they're the four and five. Um, I think that could be interesting as I think if John Wall comes back, I think that'll be interesting, which I think he will be back for playoffs. Um, they've said that. So I think, I think that would be interesting. I think that could go either way. I think that would be, um, I wouldn't necessarily give that to Cleveland. I think, especially with the state of them right now, but at the same time, like I've said so many times, I'm not, I'm not one to bet against LeBron. So 
I think in the end, Cleveland probably would take that. He'd find a way to make it work. Um, but I still think that that would be a very interesting game, especially having John Wall come back and having missed so much of the season. And I think especially with all the drama that's been kind of surrounding the Wizards with John Wall not being there and people saying, oh, they were better without him. But I think he has a lot to prove. And that's when you see players come out and really, um, really have like crazy games, especially in the playoffs. Yeah. So. That I series, think that, that would be interesting. That series is another one that is like a Dickensian novel. There's just so mm-hmm. many layers of <laughs> of drama yeah. that could that could come out of that one. I think Indiana and Philadelphia, who are currently three and six, I think that would be a great matchup because you know Indiana not expected to have gotten in that far. Philadelphia having clawed their way back into the playoffs. I think that would yeah, be a really I, fun one. I think that. I think what's interesting about the playoffs in both conferences this this year is that I think this is going to be the season where there's going to be a lot more upsets. I think I think because it's because the teams are literally if they played 10 more games, the play they could be in all different seeds and then 10 games later they could all be in completely different places. So it's like it's changing so much that I feel like the seeding at the end is not necessarily going to be representative of who's but that's not necessarily the order of who the, like how good the teams are, um, and usually they they're not always they're not always exact, but I think they're usually pretty accurate as far as like how the teams are kind of ranked. But this year it's like it they just aren't just the way that it's been working. So I think that it could easily there could be multiple upsets, and I think that's fascinating because like that that's what I mean as a sports fan. I never would want to see my team get upset, but I want to see, like, I would love to see the eight seed beat the one. Like, I would love to see Houston get taken out by the Jazz or something. Yeah, so I don't think anyone's going to upset the the Warriors or the Rockets this year, the one or two seed. I think the second round, you never know, especially with the way the Warriors are playing right now. Um, if clearly they're not really figuring it out. So if that continues, then who knows? A team could kind of um, come out of nowhere and, and kick them out but again I don't really see that happening but you never know and I would love to see that happen so let's hope that let's hope playoffs are good this year and I think they will be last year the playoffs were just not good they were just every series was boring and um, I think that that definitely is not going to be the case this year yeah you know I mentioned earlier about the summer of 2017 going down in the history books as a rough one for Cleveland I have a feeling that this whole season is gonna go down in the history books with a lot of asterisks asterisks because of injuries because you know like we've said every single podcast there's a lot of injuries and they're not just injuries they're injuries to major players who have a major impact on the team so injuries and then the players and ref conflict yeah all of that yeah I think there's a lot there's a lot going on right now right and I worry about some of those upsets everybody saying yeah but such and such a team was missing such and such a player and it just being one of those kind of like you know Dallas Mavericks 2011 years where they just kind of caught lightning in a bottle and every all of the timing was right and if somebody besides one of the you know the favorites ends up coming out of it there'll just be so many qualifications on well yeah butler was out you know um andre robertson was out i mean who thought that that was gonna make such a big impact but i don't know i i'm always curious about um you know does it matter if a team is winning because the other teams are injured i mean right now as portland fans we're watching portland on this you know 10 game winning streak and you can't talk about the 10 game winning streak without people bringing up the fact that oh portland keeps meeting people when they are short on the roster and you know i just keep like i get it that everybody wants to you know wants to see the highest competition and if the best players are injured then we're not seeing the highest competition but mm-hmm. also like that's kind of part of life like yeah. <laughs> everything isn't perfect all the time like every flower doesn't always have every petal on it sometimes they fall off i mean it's just like you know, life is messy and, you know, for every team to go through without any injuries, like, does it really take away from the team who, you know, is having this great luck? So, like, you know, does it really matter if a team is winning 
when the other teams are injured? Like, who does that matter to, Mm -hmm. like, in the long run? Yeah, I've kind of changed my mind on this. I used to be very much like, oh, well, it does like, if they're missing a team, then you're not really beating that team. And I kind of used to think that. And as time has gone on, I've kind of switched to, you know, like, if you can't win a game minus one player, then clearly, as a whole, your team is not strong. Like, your, your team as a whole is not better. So, like, if all of these teams are beating the Warriors without Steph Curry, well, clearly that means that Steph Curry is holding that team together right now, and that means that as of right now, they have not got it figured out without him. So as a team, they are not strong enough in the moment. Like, and I know a lot of people kind of argue with that, but I think it's, it's like you need to be able to lose a player and still be a strong team. Otherwise, you're not a strong team. You're a, you're you have a star player who carries your team. And if you're a strong team, you can lose someone and still be winning. The Rockets, I mean, half of the time Chris Paul wasn't playing and James Harden has missed quite a few games. They're still dominating. So that shows that shows volume or that speaks volumes on them as a team that they don't need both of those people in at all times to be strong. They can go a game. They can go two weeks without Chris Paul. They can go a couple of games without James Harden and they can still be winning. And I think that that is what is impressive about them right now. And when a team loses one player and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, they're done. Well, then it's like, okay, well, that team isn't very good. That player is just really good and is carrying that team or that player is what brings that team together. So it's, it's hard. Um, but I definitely, I don't think that teams should be discredited at all. Like obviously the Blazers just got majorly discredited for beating the Warriors without Steph. Well, go a couple weeks ago and they beat the Warriors with Steph. So I think you kind of have to, there's a give and take. Um, and there's times where I remember, I think it was two seasons ago, the Blazers beat the Warriors with Steph. And then Steph was injured for a game and didn't play and we lost. So it, it's like, you never know. It's so, it's so up in the air. I think it's, you have to just, it comes down to the team needs to be consistent no matter who's on the court. And yeah, so it's, it's difficult, but it, I mean, it just comes down to like, it's a team sport. So if the team can't do it, like if it takes one person that's going to make or break you, then your team as a whole is not. Is not like is not as strong as you as you should be. Yeah, I I think that's a that's a really great point. I like it. I like it. Well, let's move on to the second half of the podcast today and switch gears to talk about our guest today. So, Kendall, did you know that this is National Sleep Week? I didn't. Well, it is because every year on the week that starts with daylight saving time. The National Sleep Foundation celebrates Sleep Week because that is the week that everybody is the most tired. Yeah. <laughs> because daylight I can, vouch for, I can vouch for that right now. <laughs> exactly. Who doesn't disagree? So yeah. we have a fabulous guest joining us this week for National Sleep Week. Her name is Sherry Ma, and she is a research fellow at UC San Francisco at the Human Performance Center, and she studies sleep and performance in elite athletes. She consults with professional sports teams to improve their athletes' sleep habits. As a consultant for ESPN, she developed a formula to predict the most unwinnable games based on a team's schedule with sleep figuring in as one of the factors. So we're going to talk to her about these schedule alert games and what the MA score is, which happens to be named after her. We're, we got some really great information on just like why sleep is important and how teams and players can adapt better habits so that they can get better sleep. And um, she talks a little bit about some of the improvements that teams and players are able to make based on when they get the correct sleep. So let's go ahead and roll our conversation with Sherry Ma. Sherry, thank you so much for joining us today. Now, I first learned about you in an article on ESPN about the schedule alert games. 
These are the games that you helped identify uh, as the most unwinnable games, which I think is really funny to talk about unwinnable games in a sports magazine. <laughs> um, but this, these uh, unwinnable games are based on a formula that you developed called the Ma Score. Can you tell us about the Ma Score and how these schedule alert games got started and uh, what got ESPN interested in talking about all this? Sure. So first, thanks for having me on today. Uh, in regards to the NBA Schedule Alert project, this, this was in collaboration with ESPN and a project led by Baxter Holmes. Um, it was originally inspired by an observation that coaches intuitively knew some games on the schedule were going to be difficult. Not because of the opponent, perhaps, but because of the scheduling circumstances around the game. So this was a project that we launched last season, 2016 and 2017 season, where we identified 42 games that teams may be at risk of losing based on only schedule factors. So for example, that included the game density and travel factors, um, recovery and sleep opportunities when you're crossing time zones. And so it didn't factor strength of team or injuries or resting players or any factors that were unrelated to the schedule. And then this was prediction, or sorry, this prediction was about 57% of these games would be lost based on the prior 2015-2016 season. So in the end, we ended up correctly pre predicting about 69% of those games. <laughs> and then there was this higher tier called the Red Alert Games, which were the 17 games at greatest risk. And this had a prediction of about 78% chance of loss. And we ended actually about 76.5%. So it was really neat to see it play out and, and hopefully it helped increase awareness of the impact that, you know, hey, sleep and recovery and travel and this whole body clock really potentially could be important factors on performance of these elite athletes. That's that's a, a really amazing thing. That It's interesting that you took kind of a, a hunch that people had and sort of thought and then took, you know, turned it into a formula. So can you tell a little bit more about the details of those different factors and how, how they affect athletes? Sure. So credit goes to Baxter. He's the one that, you know, this was originally in conversation. I think that he observed with some of the coaches um, at an earlier year. And then we took it last year to try and actually flesh this out and say, you know, can we use some of these factors together to at least shed light on, hey, maybe this does have an impact on athletes, particularly over the long season. Um, we know sleep is so critically important for elite athletes, adequate recovery opportunities. And when you look at some of the scheduling factors that may curtail those opportunities, and then you throw in, you know, the, the fun mix of travel, and we know circadian disruption where your body clock gets uh, desynchronized from your home time zone, you know, it's almost this perfect storm of a lot of factors that um, we know, based on prior studies, could potentially impact how an athlete's going to perform. So that's where we pulled some of these together and did that last year. So kind of building on that, this year it's back for 2.0. And this season we have about 54 games. So currently to date, we've correctly picked 36 of 47 games, so about 76%. Um, and now it's based actually on the last 10 years of NBA seasons, not just one year. So um, for those listeners that are out there, if you want to follow along, we, we definitely have a few left this season. And on ESPN, we post the games for the month at the top of the month and also review what happened in the games uh, for those that want to follow the project. So how did you first get interested in sleep study and more specifically kind of what, what got you to cater towards athletics specifically? Sure. So I went to Stanford for my undergrad and I had the opportunity to work with Dr. William DeMent. He's considered the father of modern sleep medicine. And really a lot of his early work is what the field has become today. So he's the guy that discovered the various stages of sleep and really set the foundation of the field. So obviously a tremendous mentor to have. And I honestly just thought sleep was so fascinating. We, we all do it but often so poorly. And, and I thought it was interesting because it was a really young field. Um, and I fell into studying athletes pretty much by chance. And what happened was I was originally doing a study conducting um, an, an undergraduate students examining how cognitive performance might benefit from extended rest. And by chance, we had some swimmers in that study. And, you know, I remember very clearly them 
walking into the lab one morning with like these huge grins and they just were ecstatic because they had set a couple personal records in the last swim meet. And that's, that's kind of when I had the aha moment and said, you know, this is Mm -hmm. fascinating. Why don't we look at this specifically in athletes? So fast forward to my master's when I stayed at Stanford, I said, you know, let's repeat that study and focus specifically on student athletes. I obviously had access to phenomenal division one athletes at Stanford and the results were pretty fascinating. Dr. Dement said, you know, I need to stay and continue to study this in other sports. We originally worked with men's basketball and we're showing faster sprint times and like a 9% increase in free throws and three point shots. And so then we started to go down the road of looking at other sports from football and tennis and swimmers and the rest is history. So are your, uh, your studies right now are primarily focused on NBA athletes though, or is that just the particular one you're doing at the moment? No, I'm not specifically studying NBA athletes uh, from a research standpoint. So my, most of my work right now is either in lab, uh, where we look at more controlled studies in the laboratory setting where I'm at a biomechanics and exercise physiology lab called the UCSF human performance center. Or I also do in-field studies where I will work with um, elite athletes during their typical training sessions um, and also look at that just in their normal environments to try and understand how we can make interventions or understand the situations around their sleep a little bit better. So I've done that with professional baseball players and and I'm looking to, to do a couple more in this coming year. So because we are kind of an NBA podcast, do you have any, like, are there any trends that stand out amongst NBA athletes compared to other sports, um, specifically with their sleep habits? Sure. The training and travel schedules, I think, are quite intense and unique to NBA athletes, uh, in particular, just because there's a lot of circadian disruption crossing multiple time zones, right? So when you look at the NBA versus something like MLB, at least MLB has multiple days in one city where they have a series. But when you look at NBA athletes, they're crossing time zones left and right and, you know, going back to backs in multiple cities in a given week. And I think that's a really unique challenge particularly for the NBA. There's also very few recovery days. And I know the schedule has improved and given additional recovery days this year, but still in the grander scheme, there's very few recovery opportunities for these athletes. Um, A third one, obviously the high density of games, that's a factor. And then when you throw in other, you know, fun ingredients like pregame caffeine and postgame meals, and then you have alcohol on board, it's just like this perfect storm of all these factors Mm -hmm. that just make it so difficult for athletes to get quality Mm -hmm. rest. Um, And then lastly, I'd say in general, it's hard for these athletes sometimes to sleep because there's not really a great awareness around the importance of sleep for for their recovery and performance. There's a lot of longstanding traditions that are hard to, to change. And, and, you know, the NBA is just a very unique culture. I was, I just wanted to jump in and ask a really quick question because I don't really know. What do you mean by circadian rhythms? Great question. So circadian rhythms, you have this, um, this natural 24 hour rhythm where, you know, another word for it is like your body clock. And so our body clock is a little bit longer than 24 hours, but we, we have exposure to the bright sunlight that locks in our body clock during the daytime. And there's these natural ebbs and flows of your alertness where, for example, you're more alert in the morning time and then you'll get less alert in the afternoon and then you come back up and you have another peak in the evening time. And, and this is just a natural process of our internal body clock. Um, so kind of back to what you were saying about how um, because this is kind of new for some athletes, it's not something they're used to paying attention to. How are they like, how do they kind of perceive it? Like, are they easy to work with? Do they kind of um, do they fight you a little bit when you're doing the studies or is it pretty easy to to kind of work with them through it? Sure. It's, it's sometimes it's a wild card, you know, I think there's athletes that, um, are on one side where, you know, they're very fascinated with the research and the science and want to make adjustments to their training and do things better because they know that there's newer, um, evidence that could be helpful to help them succeed even at the highest level, you know, and there's other athletes on the other side where, you know, they've got their system in place and, Uh, They don't really want to make any adjustments and they've found a lot of success. So it's understandable. And then, and then I think there's those in the middle. Um, Another factor is truly probably 
age of athlete, you know, the rookies and their lifestyle are quite different uh, versus veteran players and, you know, who who start to recognize that they want to stay in the league as long as possible. And they're not 21 and invincible. Um, They need more recovery time at that point. So I think there's different factors depending on the makeup of a team. Um, specifically the athletes, but in general, right. I think it's, it's a newer aspect of sports performance in, in contact or in relationship, I think to other areas. So, you know, nutrition or strength and conditioning has been around a little bit longer, but there's still very much this cultural badge of honor that you don't need sleep or you should be able to do everything on four hours of rest and, yeah. and be the superstar. And so I think that's mm-hmm. another added challenge that um, just takes time to educate and and help athletes um, recognize that this really could be actually a competitive advantage. And in many ways, this probably one of the best, you know, quote unquote, performance enhancing drugs because it's healthy, it's free. It affects so many aspects of our physiology and performance and is quite overlooked and underutilized. I got to jump in with a, a, a follow up. You brought up, you know, the different, you know, there's rookies and then there's the older veterans. What are some of the differences with respect to their bodies and sleep, if there are any, like that rookies should know um, versus what, you know, a guy who's been in the league 10 or, you know, more years? Mm-hmm. So one is age. So some of these rookies that are coming in are obviously in their younger 20s. And at that age, your body clock, so your internal circadian clock can sometimes be shifted where you naturally want to wake up later and then sleep in later, right? And if you remember back to the college Wait. age, right? I mean, high schoolers, like, they want to sleep until noon every day. Exactly. And that's a very normal process at that age. And so um, that can be different in terms of how you want to structure or think about sleep, because if they're waking up really early for certain, you know, walkthroughs or practice or team events, um, and that means they're having a shorter an inadequate amount of sleep the prior night because of that shifted clock, it's something to consider versus obviously when you get into your mid twenties and later into your thirties, that clock shifts back into a little bit more of a normal, moral time that, that we are on currently. Eventually down the road, it's going to shift actually earlier. So once you get up uh, in, in the later years, then you want to go to bed earlier and then wake up earlier. So I think that's one thing to think about uh, in the age difference. Um, there's definitely lifestyle differences, right? A lot of the vets might have kids and those those clearly are, are wild cards in terms of how that's going to affect their sleep at times. Um, we still think that they need about the same amount. So elite athletes probably need in the, in the range of eight to 10 hours a night. Um, but sometimes that can start to change as you age too, in terms of how much of the different types of sleep you get. What are some of the, the tips that you give to the players as individuals or teams, uh, to, you know, uh, correct or follow their rhythms uh, together. So like when you're traveling, you're going, like you were saying, you're going across time zones. Some teams are now even going like to London or whatever. What are some of the techniques that teams might employ to keep themselves kind of all on sort of the same schedule or do they? Great. I think that's a good question. So maybe I'll answer it in a couple ways. I think there's three main areas or um, buckets I really target for sleep. That's one is how much sleep duration you're getting. That's important. Two is the quality of sleep that you're targeting. And then the third is like the timing of your sleep. But then when you throw into the mix crossing time zones, that introduces a whole, a whole nother set of, of things to consider of how you're going to travel. And you bring up the London games as, as a new challenge, which very much is different than trying to go one time zone or even three time zones when you go east-west traveling, right? Um, and in those situations, typically you want to consider what are the travel recommendations and strategy you're going to employ, hopefully not just when you get to the new time zone, but hopefully there's... Um, forethought to to devise strategies before the flight. So you have pre-flight strategies. What are you doing in flight? And then what are you doing post-flight? And these will depend on how long you're staying, what time are are the games and the athletes need to be at their best, and then what are you coming back to? And and so those are fun parts of this puzzle that you that you have to factor um, to try and find what's going to be best for the team. Who does it usually fall on in with the team? Does like care? Was like the trainers <laughs> or the nutritionists or 
You know, I can't speak for all teams. I, I don't know. <laughs> I can say that, um, you know, I, I think sometimes the travel scheduling, uh, the travel scheduler is someone who obviously is involved in that process and hopefully trying to consider these factors. I think, um, unfortunately, by and large, a lot of teams, at least historically, I would say, you know, five, 10 years ago is probably more prevalent than it is today. But there weren't a lot of travel strategies that teams employ. They would get on the plane, get to the new time zone and then try to adjust. And I think it's definitely a much more recent uh, change that teams are starting to, you know, consult with sleep specialists and consult with others to try and devise better strategies. I don't think that it's quite there yet. Um, I think it's still quite new, but I, I, it'll, I think it'll grow and it'll hopefully be a bigger and impo more important component of how teams think about their, their travel schedule overall. So I listen to a lot of NBA podcasts and sometimes the some of the national writers start talking about things like how they would change the schedule and that they would make it less games or more games or they would make it a longer season or a shorter season just based on like, you know, sleep and health and knowing that I'm just like springing this question on you at the very last second. <laughs> would you make what kind of changes would you make to the schedule if you had a magic wand to oh. Oh, man. Maximize performance. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, great question. I, I think it's difficult. There's so many factors to consider. And I understand from each of the different parties' perspective, there's certain priorities, right? And I think sometimes those clash. And that's why it creates... Um, some of the situations I think we've seen with some of the the games in the past couple seasons of resting players and ultimately trying to also minimize injuries and also have a great you know product out on the court that fans are going to enjoy and continue to watch for many years to come. Um, purely from more of a sleep and and recovery and performance perspective, um, you know, I we tried to identify and <laughs> at least highlight with the ESPN schedule at Project that, that these factors, when combined together, they potentially can affect performance outcomes. Um, the really high density of games is something that we think is likely not advantageous for proper recovery for athletes. Uh, and that's something I think should be evaluated, how the, the time zone crossing is occurring and at what pace, um, whether that allows athletes really to adjust appropriately, I think is another factor. Um, I don't have a perfect solution by any means. I think that it's a work in progress. I know this, the league made great strides in terms of improving the schedule for this year, and I definitely commend them for that. There's less four games in five nights, less, or sorry, there's no four games in five nights. There's less five games in seven nights. Um, they attempted to try and build in more recovery days and, and ultimately how that affected the season. I think obviously, you know, we're towards the end, but it'll, it'll shed some light on what that did for this year. And I think it's still going to evolve and um, we'll learn from the season and hopefully just continue to work together from the different parties to find a solution that hopefully is, is best for all parties. Oh, so um, taking kind of a step back from uh, sports with this, what are some things that just kind of everyone can do um, to kind of improve their sleeping habits and just kind of like general trends that you see? Sure. So again, going back to like my three buckets that I typically target for whether you're an elite athlete or whether you're, you know, a, a weekend warrior, the first is sleep duration. And for every healthy adult, you minimally need to get seven hours of rest every single night. And that's the lower limit though. So some need eight hours or nine hours and you really want to find what is best for you in terms of being alert throughout the day and refreshed in the morning time and gradual changes are better. So, um, you know, if you're an elite athlete and we talked about, you know, eight to 10 hours, if you're getting six hours right now, no, don't suddenly jump to 10, do it gradually over time. Um, two is really about the quality. So having an approach and a routine to sleep is going to be key. And I, I know it sounds like a small change, but it's a small change in mindset. I think that, um, switches from sleep just being like an afterthought and just jumping into bed and it happens whenever it happens to athletes actually having a dedicated wind down routine and whether they choose to stretch or read or prayer, it, it really, um, helps them plan for sleep and it helps them prioritize sleep as an important part of their training. This ultimately then will improve the quality. And then it helps really connect the dots of, um, 
what you do at nighttime and how it affects the day. So a couple things in the other quality bucket is powering down technology. I know it's so difficult, but it very much can affect our ability to sleep. And then obviously your environment is going to be key. So I tell um, elite athletes, you know, all of us working professionals, you want to make it like a cave, really dark and quiet and cool and comfortable. That's going to be the best setup for sleep success. And then evaluating, of course, caffeine and alcohol. Those are two <clears throat> that will very much affect um, not only your ability to fall asleep, but then the quality of that sleep, particularly alcohol, really fragments your sleep and reduces the quality. Uh, and then the last thing, or one of the last things I'd say definitely to make sure for, for all of us is physical activity. We, we very much know that there's relationships between being physically active and then good, good quality sleep. So good for you, good for your sleep. Uh, make sure you're getting in your, your workouts during the week. And then the third bucket is sort of the timing of sleep. So the same bedtime and wake time is going to be key. And our bodies like that regularity. And I know we're all so um, easy to shift the time or we lose track of where, where we are in the evening time. But um, as being as diligent as possible can very much affect the quality of rest you're going to get. Oh, that's so inspiring. <laughs> oh, and, oh, here's a fun bonus. Right now. Yeah. I was going to throw in a phone bonus for you too. So have you heard of the caffeine nap? No. No? Okay. This is also known as the nappuccino. But first, okay, so you have to be able to fall asleep within five to 10 minutes, which actually may indicate and suggest that you don't get enough sleep on a regular basis. But hey, if that's you, then here's sort of like a magical trick. So um, <laughs> you, you drink a cup of coffee and the caffeine will start to take effect in about 15 minutes. And then you go and take a short 20 to 30 minute power nap. Then when you wake up, then boom, both will have kicked in. Both the caffeine will have kicked in and the nap. And so really, if you time this correctly in the afternoon, that's when it's easiest to get this caffeine nap in. But um, it's been shown to be more effective than just caffeine alone or just the nap alone. I'm going to have to use that. <laughs> you you no, got to give it a try and then let me know how it goes, okay? Yeah, I'll have to do that at school. <laughs> Once I, when I start needing that, when I go back to school, I'm constantly needing naps and I never feel fully rested. So that's, I guess that's the way to go. I'll start doing that. So one more other interesting tidbit of, of sleep in the NBA, I think is one recent story that, um, you know, has been quite inspiring of how athletes have really honed in on proper sleep is someone like Andre Godala from the Warriors really struggled with his sleep for about 10 years. And he's been very open about this and, and what that meant in terms of um, how he wanted to adjust this as he led into his later years and the Warriors. But he got there and he knew that he wanted to stay in the league as long as possible. But um, he knew he didn't do sleep well. And as an example, he would stay up till four in the morning playing video games, and then he would sleep for about three hours from four to seven, and then he would roll into practice, and then he would come home and take a power nap for about two to three hours. And this was this vicious cycle that he did for about 10 years. And so, you know, out of his own choice, he got to the Warriors a couple of years ago and said, you know, I want to um, be in this league as long as possible. I need to do this better. And so I was introduced to Andre and, um, we approached, uh, his sleep by looking at the timing that we looked at how much he was getting, the quality factors adjusted, um, his naps and, and really he, he started to extend his sleep from obviously under seven hours to seven and a half to eight. And it's really neat to see some of the changes that occurred over that period. Obviously, Andre was always playing at a quite very high level, so nothing to take away from that. But really, when he actually had a foundation of healthy and adequate sleep, there were stats that were collected along the way during that season and showed that his, you know, his, I think his three point percentage went up twofold during that period. His points per minute went up 29%. Um, and, you know, he saw an improvement, I think, in his free throws also about 8.9%, which in a very neat way mimicked the 9% that I had shown with the Stanford athletes. And so, um, you know, he, he very much advocated that this was an important part of that championship run, not just during 
during the postseason, but along the way during that season. And, and then obviously they came home quite happy that, that, that following year. Um, and so much so that he, the first picture he tweeted out after they won the championship, you'll see on Twitter is him, you know, taking a power nap um, with his MVP trophy <laughs> stretched <laughs> out um, on the plane, you know, and it's a funny picture, but I think it does at least underscore that the the sleep and the recovery part was something that he very much um, considered an, an aspect of that year. So fun story, but uh, very much, I think, illustrates how much of a difference, you know, quality rest can be for, for an elite athlete. Well, our final question is one that we ask everyone that we have on the show, and uh, that is about, because we're trying to elevate the voice of women in basketball or in whatever um, arena you practice. So is there a woman or women that especially inspire you in this work that you do? Great question. So one woman that I think um, has really inspired me the last couple of years is Ariana Huffington. She's someone who's been an incredible ambassador for healthy sleep. Um, she had her own sleep crisis, which led her to writing a book entirely on sleep called The Sleep Revolution. And she's been a tremendous advocate in industry and in media of how essential sleep is for each of us to be at our best and to truly thrive. And I will throw in there, she she definitely has, you know, a, a great spot for the integration with sports. So we've done a fireside chat at Stanford with Andre Iguodala from the Warriors previously. Um, and although she's not a sleep scientist herself, she's championed a movement to increase awareness of healthy sleep and has truly given it a greater voice. So I very much admire her work and, and what she's done to still make sleep a cornerstone of her current work. I had no idea that, about that about Ariana Huffington. That's uh, from the Huffington Post, right? Exactly. She was the founder of Huffington, yes. And now she has a current uh, a new company called Thrive. And part of Thrive is about... Um, making sure that sleep is an important part of how, how you can thrive in life and whatever you do. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us today and for those tips that you have for us, even if we might not be pro athletes, I bet you everybody <laughs> is going to have a little nugget that they can take away and apply to their own lives. Oh, and so if people want to follow you on Twitter or learn more about your work, how can they find you? Sure. The best way to probably follow is on Twitter. So my handle is at Sherry underscore Ma. So C-H-E-R-I underscore M-A-H. Thanks so much for joining us today. No, this yeah, has been great. You. Thanks so much. So that's going to do it for this edition of the Women's Hoops and Talks, the What Podcast. We are hosted by Blazers Edge, part of the Almighty Baller Radio Network. If you like what you heard, please go find Blazers Edge Podcast on iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe and rate and review. We release new episodes of the What Podcast every other Thursday. If you want to get notified when the new podcast episodes are released, you can follow us on Twitter at Hoops and Talks. I'm on Twitter at Kendall Bennett 16 and Tara is TCB Bids or Team Mom Rip City.